The Night Owl Podcast, Episode 24, Origins, Part 1. Welcome to the Night Owl Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Ballou, and this is a place for all you restless spirits out there to tune in and hear true tales of the paranormal. I hunt these stories down, capture them from the mouths of those who experience them, and share them with you, right here. If you have a story to tell, we're currently looking for more personal ghost stories, so if you or someone you know has one, please submit it to us for consideration. Go to thenightowlpodcast.com, click on the Submit Your Story page, and let us hear your ghost story. We'd love to consider it for the show. Seeing that it's just days before Halloween and the season is coming to a close, we decided to do something special for this episode. Instead of featuring other people's ghost stories, we're going to make this one personal. Throughout season one and two, I've hinted at the reasons why I got into the paranormal and what's led me down this path of creating the show but I've never actually shared with you my personal ghost stories. So tonight, for the first time ever publicly, I, along with my good friend and team member Alexis, are going to share first-hand accounts of some of the most significant experiences we had growing up. These particular experiences seem to be the catalysts that spurred our desire to explore the paranormal and eventually led us to pursue answers not just for ourselves, but for all those out there who've wrestled with belief in the supernatural. These stories are truly the origin of the Night Owl podcast. We'll be gathering around a campfire this chilly October night to share these stories with you, so be sure to cozy up and join us by the fire in just a moment. If you're new to the show, a quick note. This podcast is best devoured in chronological order, so we highly recommend that you stop here and begin your journey with us on episode one, ink, coffee, and spirits. And before we begin the show, we have a ton of special events and announcements, so let's run through some of those so you don't miss a chance to attend any of what we have coming up. We're so thrilled that we were asked to return to the Austin Film Festival this Halloween to present another night of ghost stories live on the stage at the State Theater. These stories will be candid and straight from the mouths of those who experience them. I've already pre-selected five storytellers with true personal ghost stories for this night, So join us for this very special event at the Historic State Theater downtown and let these eerie tales of the supernatural haunt you this Halloween night. There are two ways that you can attend. A badge or film pass to the festival already gains you entry, but if you want to attend this event solely, you can easily buy individual tickets from the Paramount Theater right now online for $12. I created a tiny URL link that you can visit to get more details on this event and how to get tickets. Go to tinyurl.com slash nightofghoststories And if you grab a badge or film pass, be sure to use promo code NIGHTOWAFF to get $10 off. Our October has been incredible, but our November is looking to be pretty darn awesome as well. Already we have two unique offerings coming your way. Saturday, November 9th, come spend an evening enjoying fine Argentine tapas, dessert, and spirits of both varieties. Join me and clairvoyant friend Sarah as we dine with the dead and raise our glasses to the spirits that haunt Buenos Aires Café. We'll dine and mingle in the basement speakeasy milonga room, take a ghost tour of the property, and end the night with delicious pastries and coffee from Buenos Aires Cafe, as we close with the final Q&A with Sarah and myself. This event is limited to 20 tickets. The cost will be $150 per person, but it's all-inclusive with a private ghost tour, a tapas-style dinner off a set menu, a welcome punch, and two additional spirited cocktails, coffee, dessert, and a night out gift. All taxes and gratuities are also included in the ticket price. And any additional drinks and food can be purchased a la carte. Tickets go on sale first to Patreon supporters Saturday night, that's October 26th, at midnight Central Standard Time. If any tickets remain, they will open up for everyone else Sunday night, October 27th, at midnight Central Standard Time. Keep an eye out on our social media, website, and Patreon page for updates. Lastly, we're very excited to announce that we have our first date slated for an official Night Owl ghost tour at Pioneer Farms. This tour will be an intimate, deep dive of the location, with me, Sarah, and Alexis as your tour guides, taking you along the trails that we walked and stopping at the places we stopped. This special tour will be on the night of the new moon, November 26th, from 7 to 10 p.m., and we'll only have 20 tickets available. 
As usual, Patreon supporters are going to get first dibs on tickets for the first 24 hours. Then, if any tickets remain, we'll open them up to the general public. More details for ticket sales are coming soon, so keep an eye on our social media, website, and Patreon page for updates. We look forward to seeing many of you this November. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop. When you need custom t-shirts, this shop's got your back. Crisp, clean t-shirt printing without setup fees or hidden costs, and always delivered on time. Oboyprintshop.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y printshop.com. Mention the Night Owl podcast and get $50 off your first order. Alexis and I met in college while attending A&M University in Corpus Christi. We were both in the film department, and we quickly noticed that each of us had similar tastes in cinema. Horror. Soon enough, we became friends and began watching scary movies and discussing cinema. But it didn't take long for us to realize that we had another common interest. Ghosts. And before we knew it, our nights of watching horror movies turned into nightly road trips to desolate South Texas towns with haunted graveyards and hanging trees. Our amateur days of paranormal investigating started out so innocently and so illegal. We trespassed onto private property so many times, I'm surprised one of us never got shot or wound up dead. But as you can tell, now, we've both come a long way. And although our individual paths have veered slightly down this road, they're still on the same path, within the same realm, the realm of the supernatural. So now, at the beginning of this new season, Alexis and I took some time to reflect on our past. We've come to appreciate our early beginnings those private, personal experiences we had as kids long before we knew one another, and we were surprised at how much our lives have been guided down similar tracks. And tonight, I'm excited to share with you some of the more intimate encounters that we had growing up, the kind that quite honestly were the defining moments for us and our pursuit of the paranormal. So first up, we're going to start with Alexis, one of the first paranormal experiences he ever had. We call this story The Red Curtains. My name is Alexis, and this is probably the earliest experience that's ever happened to me. But a little bit of backstory. I grew up in a small town really close to the border called Hebronville, Texas. The thing about Hebronville is is there's not much to do out there. So one of the things that I kind of got enamored with growing up was folk tales, legends, stories about brujas, which is like witches and healers, which we call curanderos. And there were some famous healers that actually lived near the area. I was like, kind of just like enamored by a lot of that growing up. And the neighborhood I lived in also kind of had a lot of history because it was really close to the Catholic Church. And there was lots of legends about this church, about underground tunnels and famous, you know, kind of town secrets, town ghost stories type thing. But, you know, when you live in a small town and there's nothing else to do, you, you end up like meeting people who are like-minded. And I had met my friend Juan Carlos, and we would like break into buildings and go to the cemetery and try to record with our like little cassette recorders. One time we actually did get a little girl, and that was the story too, was that there was a little girl that would haunt the cemeteries. So these are all kinds of the things that I grew up around and found interesting. But this particular story deals with more of my home area. Now, everybody kind of has this house. It's the house that everybody knows. It's the house that's down the street that's bigger than everybody's house, more beautiful than everybody's house. Just, so, you know, it, that's the house that everybody knows. I, I always kind of refer to it as like like the Edward Scissorhands house. You, know, you, got, you got like the, the, the normal houses, and then you have like the one big giant house at the end of the street, and that's what this one which we'll call the Vasquez house. So the Vasquez house was a beautiful two-story kind of castle-looking house. It was white. It had kind of these castle-like features, like those kind of cut-out tops, and it even had like a tower in the back and had very, very specific kind of Spanish pre-colonial style home. And the weirdest thing about this house was it had these really gross, ugly red curtains on the top floor. 
every other part of the house was great. It's just this one thing about the house that was very, it's very distinct are these red, really gross, ugly red curtains on the second floor of the house. So we had heard stories that, you know, this house is haunted and it was actually right next to this other building that is said to be haunted as well, which is the old um, nunnery. The reason I mentioned the church earlier is because there was legends that all these houses were connected in some way through underground tunnels or, or something along those lines. So I was in Boy Scouts and one of the things we had to do for Boy Scouts was fundraising. So how you like survive, I guess, how it survives. And we would take catalogs or actual products and we would like sell them door to door. And I remember this year in this particular time, we were selling popcorn. It would come in these giant baskets. You always had to take one with you and then you would take the catalog and then like you'd say like this is the giant tub of popcorn. These are the flavors and like you can decide which ones you want, etc, etc. So we're going from house to house and obviously we're going to hit up all the neighbors, right? And then we get to the Vasquez house. It's me and my mom. And, you know, we knock on the door. Mrs. Vasquez opens the door and she lets us inside. You know, we're showing her the goods and she's kind of looking through the catalog and perusing through it. And all of a sudden, we hear this sound upstairs. And it sounded kind of like something fell. Just a, a thump. We didn't think anything of it. And no, not that big of a deal. We know that Mr. Vasquez also lives there. So we're continuing to talk. And, you know, at this point, probably my mom's just kind of talking to her about local gossip, etc. So then we hear a noise again. And this one's a little bit louder. And it sounds like, again, like something fell. Thump. Crash. Things moving around. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So at this point, my mom's kind of intrigued. I'm intrigued, too, because I'm a little kid, and I had heard stories of the haunted house with the red curtains. So my mom's like, is Mr. Vasquez home? And she's like, no. No, Mr. Vasquez isn't here. My mom's like, oh, okay. And then, you know, still continuing to talk, and then again, another noise, third time. Okay, well, that's strange. So my mom's like, oh, well, what's going on upstairs then? Like, is... You somebody else? Are you working, having work done, or you know, some something else to try to figure out what's going on? And that's when she says, "No, that's just the ghost." And so, of course, my mom's like, "Really? What? What's the story? Like, what's the situation?" And they are like, "We don't know. You know, with this, we bought this house, and and this is something that we've had to deal with. Whoever it is, uh, they reside on the second floor. And the second floor." kind of interesting is actually one giant room so that the house is like a bunch of rooms but the second floor is just one giant space the story goes or what she explained is that this ghost lives up there and it loves those red curtains and if you ever try to take the red curtains down or remove the red curtains they will be back up the next day years later i found out that the Vasquez's eventually moved out because mr Vasquez had apparently went up there was tired of those ugly red curtains, pulled them all down, and as he was going down the steps, he was pushed down the steps by something. So when they were realizing that the spirit was no longer friendly and no longer just making noises, but actually willing to hurt them in some way, they decided to leave. And to this day, that house is still abandoned. It's never been inhabited. The neighbors take care of it, and the Vasquez's still own it, but they won't let anybody in it. And to this day, those red curtains are still in the windows. And they say that if you park outside the house and you stay there long enough, you'll see somebody peek out through those curtains. Something that always elevates a paranormal experience to another level is validation. And I find myself a little envious of Alexis's first experience when I hear him retell this story. What a great first encounter this was for him. He had an experience in a legendary haunted house with two witnesses to corroborate it. It's not that common to have an experience like that at such a young age. In fact, my defining experience, the one I've not told many people, happened to me when I was entirely alone. But years later, when I was in high school, I'd actually have an experience very similar to Alexis's, and I took a friend of mine and a camera in search of a legendary haunted house in my hometown, and we actually found it. I call this story The Lynch House. I grew up in a really small South Texas town 
Uh, it's a town called Pawnee, Texas. And the population is about 300 people. And I'm being generous when I say 300 people. It's actually probably closer to 200 to 250. And the town's made up of predominantly Hispanic community. And I'm a part of that community. My mom is Hispanic, and I grew up really close to that side of the family. Uh, my grandparents lived there, as well as many of my aunts and uncles and cousins. But in my immediate family, I was the only child. I grew up wanting to explore a lot, seek out the truth, uh, explore the community and the neighborhoods. Just because I was curious and creative in that way, I wanted to find things to do other than sit around and play Nintendo all day. So... As the years went by, I grew interested in the folklore and the legends of the town. And being a Hispanic community, there's a lot of Mexican mysticism and folklore that come out of that culture. I grew up learning of La Llorona, the weeping woman, Lechuzas, which are shape-shifting owls that are actually witches. And within every town, obviously, you have those big, broad, overarching legends that kind of just dominate in the culture. But then you also have legends that spawn out of the town and the townspeople. And my town had its own legend. It was the story of an old house abandoned in a field. And it was called the Lynch House. It wasn't called that because of actual lynching or anything like that. It was actually the last name of the family that built and owned that property. It was known as the Haunted House. But it was also known as the house that you could not find. I found that interesting growing up in that small town and never seeing this legendary haunted house, but I wanted to find it. In the summer of my junior year, going into my senior year of high school, I was already getting into some of the arts that I was kind of going to pursue in college, possibly, and one of those mediums was film. I wanted to do something similar to a documentary about ghost stories surrounding my hometown. I started off by interviewing friends and family members then branching off to neighbors and hearing their personal ghost stories. And soon enough, I started to piece together that this Lynch house was a commonality amongst many people talking about the legends and ghost stories surrounding this town. From my interviews and from talking with family and friends, I was able to piece together where it might actually be located. Now, there were some distinguishing factors to this house. It was a tall, two-story white home, but the most distinct characteristic was its red roof. So I needed to go out, take a drive, and see if I could spot this infamous house. But I wasn't going to do it alone. My name's Garrett Curbello. I've known Steven since like the early 2000s. We went to school together and um, he was always into uh, creepy things and heavy metal and scary stuff. So we, we knew of this, uh, this creepy old abandoned house out near his hometown of Pawnee that there were urban legends about it. And we decided to go check it out and hopefully record it. And Garrett and I had gotten to this county road that everyone had directed us to. And we searched and scanned the horizon, the tree lines, the fields, and we really didn't see anything. I had a pair of binoculars and also had a camera, and we scanned the horizons and tree lines once more, and I saw something. It was pretty far off in the distance, nestled deep in the thick brush and tree line about two miles in the distance of the pasture ahead of us. It looked like a red roof, just a portion of it poking through the top canopy of the trees. I showed it to Garrett, and he agreed it did look like a structure. It was out literally in the middle of a, a brush field. We had to kind of trek our way through there and get to the house. Remember, it did look like what it was supposed to be, just a creepy abandoned house. There was overgrown brush leading up to the entrance. It was a white, two-story home, dilapidated, abandoned, nearly falling apart, and it had a rusty red roof. Garrett and I looked at each other, and without words, we both knew what we were thinking. We had found the Lynch house. The thing that made it eerie was, when we approached it, it just got really quiet. And it could have just been our nerves and our imagination, but out in the field, we could hear the rustling of the grass, the birds. Just a lot more noise, but in this thick brush surrounding this abandoned home, everything just felt a little too quiet. And looking back at it now... It's my very first ever ghost hunt. I'd never gone investigating before. This was kind of the first step for me. And I wasn't going to back down. And it took us a while to even get to the front door because the brush and the thorns and the vines were so thick 
we had to manually tear them apart and kind of weasel our way through it all. As we got to the front door, the feelings were just getting worse. It's like we're not supposed to be here. Truly we weren't, we were trespassing. But it felt bigger than that. So we pressed our way in and I started to recall the stories that surrounded this place. The legends were many people that found this place on occasion, whether they were on a hunting trip or just passing through the property, and discover little interesting things about the place. It was abandoned, truly abandoned. There was suitcases left on the beds. Inside the suitcases were clothes and belts from the early 1900s. Bathrooms and living rooms were left completely furnished. Kitchens had utensils and items in it. It's like someone just picked up and left. And the legend had it that a family left the place because it was haunted. Now this obviously could not be validated in any way, and especially at an age of 16, I didn't have the skill set and the drive to do what I do now, investigate and do historical research. So I just believed it, obviously. Another story that stood out to me about the Lynch house was a good friend of my uncle's. He told me a story about when they were in high school, they knew of the place being supposedly haunted, so they wanted to get a good scare, and they got a group together, went out to the Lynch house. They took a Ouija board, took a bunch of candles, and they did somewhat of a seance. And what happened that night really terrified this friend of my uncle's. He told me that they had made contact with something on the board, and that a lot of the teenagers there were getting kind of afraid. And it was towards the end of the night that they started to get a reaction physically from the spirit that they were communicating with. They were getting a pounding, and it started to encircle them in the room. Until it made its way all the way around the room and ended on the basement door. And they said they just kept hearing the pounding. And it stopped, and the basement door creaked open. And that's when they said they left the circle, they broke it, they packed their things up, and they left. And now I'm at the doorstep of this house, and I'm pushing through into the darkness. And the first thing I see on my left is the cracked open doorway to the basement. Thankfully, Garrett was there, and he was pushing his way into the door, so he sort of nudged me to keep moving, and I did. We pushed our way in, and immediately I started to think about things, and I was more afraid of the feeling of being caught. I felt like someone was in the house and we shouldn't be there. As we pushed through, we walked through a narrow hallway and to our right was the kitchen. We were kind of creeped out going in, a little, little hesitant. We didn't know what to expect. Uh, in addition to maybe there being something spooky, you know, potentially wild animals. There's lots of critters in Texas that can get at you, rattlesnakes and stuff. So we, we went in real cautiously, kind of checked the place out. Some of the old cabinets and stuff were still open. It looked like somebody, you know, just kind of picked up and left, like we talked about. I made my way further down the hall, and there was a stairwell to our left. Uh, one of the defining features of the house was a staircase that led up directly into a door. It went up, had a landing, then it cut hard left, another landing, hard left, another landing. So from the bottom of the stairs, you cannot see upstairs. And that kind of bothered me. I felt like... Someone else was in the house already. They were upstairs, and I felt like they were just listening for us. So I kind of led the way past the stairwell and into the main master bedroom. There's no other way out now, by the way. We'd have to go back to that long hallway and push our way through thick brush if we were going to fly out of this place. In the bedroom, there was a suitcase on the bed. It was open, and there was an old belt, some old pants. I think I saw an old shoe. I remembered I had the camera, and I said I should turn this on. And in kind of like the cliche horror movie and ghost hunter type fashion, the batteries were dead. And I don't like to jump to the conclusion that this was paranormal. But I know for a fact I did charge the battery all night prior to coming. It was frustrating, to say the least, because I had finally found the Lynch house. And I was here, and I was ready to document what was about to unfold. But now I couldn't. And in whispers, Garrett and I communicated about where we should walk next. And we both agreed that we should try to go upstairs. I guess the, the final step was to try to go up the stairs. And we were hesitant to actually open the door to see what might be behind there. But as we were going up, I know you 
told me, you know, if something happens, just just run or I'll say something, get out. I wasn't being brave here. I was saying if something makes a noise and we hear something as I'm opening this door, fly out that door. Go down those stairs, run out, because I'm right behind him. And if he's slow, I'm the one that's going to get grabbed. (laughs) I was aware of the paranormal activity. I was aware of the ghost stories. But the feeling there felt like we were intruding in someone's space there could have been some crazy wild nomad living there even though that's impossible this was in the middle of nowhere it's really really a far stretch to think that someone was in this house but for some reason that's where my mind went so i'm here at the top of the landing garrett's right behind me we have nothing on us no weapons no way to defend ourselves camera's dead i put my hand on this old cast iron doorknob You can't turn those doorknobs quietly, and sure enough, it starts to rattle and kind of grind. We both hear the sound of a large person seemingly laying on the ground just on the other side of that door, jolt up. You hear like the scraping of the clothes and the boots sliding up and landing flat on the surface of the floor, and it started to rush the door. I look back, Garrett's already halfway down the stairs. He did exactly what I told him to do. And now I'm flying. We're, we don't care about these rinkety stairs anymore. We just want to get the hell out of here. We bust out the door. Garrett's cutting his arms on brush. It's flapping back and hitting me and cutting me in the face and arms. We don't care. We heard something. Somebody stood up. Somebody got disturbed. You know, say if somebody was sitting on the other side and heard somebody opening the door, it just it felt that way. And there was definitely a noise, which it would otherwise be a quiet place. Surprisingly, we decided to go back home, charge the battery for good, and come back later. This time, though, we called another friend, Andrew. Whatever's in there sounded big, and if it was a real person, we thought three against one is a lot better odds. We asked him if he had a weapon of sorts, and he told us he had a baseball bat. The three of us met at my parents' house. We packed up our gear. This time, the camera was working. The battery was fully charged, so we were going to go out try again and then when we decided to come back uh, with a friend Andrew with a a camera to record everything it's kind of the same thing but we were even a little more hesitant because of what had happened that first time so uh, Andrew was the one who was chosen to be armed with the baseball bat in case we needed to uh, hit a ghost with a baseball bat I don't know how well that would have worked out but um, we went back in same thing kind of recorded it and one thing I did remember especially is just kind of the feel of the house. Uh, I think a lot of times people say that you can kind of feel or sense a presence. For me, actually, I didn't feel that same kind of thing as if the house was occupied. To me, it felt more like it was just hollow, like it was a, a husk of something that used to be, that there wasn't any human presence there. But when, whenever we started thinking about or moving up to the upstairs room, something did feel weird or off. So we pressed our way past the basement, down the hallway, into the master bedroom. We're walking along the side of the wall that actually butts up against the hallway to the stairway. And the stairs run alongside this wall. But the sound of footsteps upstairs stops us in our tracks. It sounded like soft thuds right above our heads. Everything was quiet, but then we heard more noises, just like something had been disturbed or moved or someone had gotten up out of a chair. It's hard to discern exactly what it was, but there was definitely more noises the second time we came around. And we're looking at each other and we're just like, yeah, we all heard that. Okay, we all heard that. We don't know what to do next. We're kind of just staying quiet because it continues moving a little bit around the house. As we're sitting there quiet, those footsteps, those light pattering sounds became very distinct and loud. And they seemed to come from the top landing and barrel down to the bottom of the stairs. This is exactly where we're standing, in the bedroom just inside the doorway on the opposite side of where the stairwell is. We're frozen, and now whatever it was was now standing in the hallway, and it was blocking our only exit. Then we went from laughing and kind of nervous to just serious and kind of this might be something scary. I think I remember we finally, uh, you know, built up the courage to actually look into the room. 
I'm holding the camera, but I'm not holding it looking at anything. I'm frozen in fear. And so is Andrew, and so is Garrett. Andrew's gripping the bat. Garrett's mouth is wide open. I'm staring with wide eyes at my two friends, looking at them for an answer. Like, what do we do? I realize I have the camera in my hand, and it does have an actual viewfinder. And the only thing I could think of, because all of us were frozen, was that I could extend my hand out slightly and look out into that hallway with the camera. We'd all be able to see on that viewfinder if someone or something was there. I don't know how I did it or how I got the nerve tube, but I extended my hand, and within view, we saw a completely vacant hallway. Whatever came down those stairs, we heard it. It's a wood floor. We would have heard it walk off. We are certain that something else was there that day with us. After a few seconds, what had all transpired kind of faded, and we felt a little lighter, like whatever was there had left. And somehow, I came up with the idea that we should walk upstairs and open that door once and for all. I led the way, and we took care walking up those stairs, and I got to the top, and this time I just put my hand on the handle, twisted, and shoved that door open. And to our surprise, it was just a single vacant room. Nothing was in there. I know it was a relatively small room, a couple of windows, and I don't remember exactly what was in the room. I want to say there were signs of, you know, obviously where somebody might have been living there at some point, maybe little pieces of broken furniture, um, old sheets on the ground, something of that effect. But like I said it was all relatively calm, quiet, and serene. But anytime we went up or tried to approach that uh, actual room is when we heard noises. And it wasn't like a guess, like... Was that something I just heard? We all, um, like, heard the same noises, so I don't know exactly what was going on in that house, but um, I know we all felt that it it was something. We we were creeped out after the fact. I definitely remember that. Like I mentioned earlier, I didn't necessarily feel like I felt anything while we were there, at least downstairs, but I do remember after leaving or finally leaving, like, just feeling that that relief, but also feeling like something was kind of staring at our backs as we you know, went back through the brush to leave. I I do remember feeling a relief to get out of there. We recorded everything and we packed up and made our way through the coastal field back to the truck and drove home. We could hear the sounds on the tapes, the footsteps. It wasn't as loud as it was when we were there, but you could hear them. This was back in the day when we shot on high eight cameras and that tape no longer works anymore. I'm sad because I'd love to have my first paranormal investigation documented still. It's a really cool part of my history and my past, but it's always going to remain vivid in my mind. And I'd like to think that it remains vivid in Andrew and Garrett's as well. The Lynch House still stands to this day. Most of the house's history stems from urban legend more than anything else. And even though I've tried to dig up information on it, the records of small towns and counties like Pawnee are pretty much non-existent so I honestly had to just put it behind me. It's far too dangerous to venture there ever again. It honestly could collapse at any moment. But I do have cousins and uncles from Pawnee that hunt on that property, and they've reported to me on more than one occasion that they hear voices coming from the house when they walk past it at night. When we get back from this short break, Alexis is going to share one more story from his hometown of Heavenville, and at the close of this episode, I'll reveal my first and most terrifying paranormal experience that happened to me in my bedroom when I was 10 years old. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop, custom printed t-shirts made in Austin with love. Now, there are many reasons why I love this family-owned print shop and why Oh Boy is my go-to shop for all things Night Owl, but let me pick one to rave to you about today. Have you ever ordered custom tees from an event or bought some from your favorite band or company? only to realize that they're thick, scratchy, and look like you're wearing a bag that isn't very flattering on you? Well, that's one thing that won't happen to you when you're with Oh Boy Print Shop. They offer a variety of t-shirts to provide the right choice to meet your needs. I myself prefer comfortable, slightly fitted tees that look and feel awesome enough to wear every day, either by themselves or under a throwover shirt or sweater. Oh Boy Print Shop helped me pick out a tee that fit those needs, and honestly, when I open my closet in the morning, I skip all my other tees and go straight for the Night Owl shirt, because it's the most comfortable and flattering tee in my entire closet now. 
Oboy's aim is to provide you with the options that help you get the product that meets your every need. So, there's no more need for hesitating. Order your first batch of custom printed tees with Oboy Print Shop today, and you'll be in great hands. Plus, now you can get $50 off your first order by simply mentioning the Night Owl Podcast. So what are you waiting for? Visit oboyprintshop.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y printshop.com. The town of Hebronville was established in 1915, and there's only two buildings in the city that I can think of that actually have that date on the building itself. There's the courthouse, and then there's Hotel Vigo. And the Hotel Vigo is still kind of accredited to this day as what allowed the city of Heavenville to kind of flourish. It was the Hotel Vigo and the railroad. That's the only reason that this town kind of became a town, because there was a beautiful, giant, several-story hotel where people could stay and ranch and hunt and do all kinds of things in South Texas. One day, me and my friends, Jerry and Carlos, and a couple of other friends, were at my friend Jerry's house, and we decided to play the Ouija board. One person in particular, the spirit that was coming through, kept saying that their name was VK. Over and over again, VK, 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 every single time we would ask. We couldn't figure out who VK was. We were trying to think about people that had passed or, you know, any other stories we had heard, but we had no idea what a VK was or, you know who VK would be. At one point, I decided to take a little break, and I was looking at some books that Jerry's dad had there on the shelf nearby, and he had this one gold book. This book was an anniversary celebration of Hebronville, and the book had a whole bunch of old pictures of Hebronville, the old buildings, the old original roads, and things like that. And then I come across this one picture, and the picture is of this man with a big white beard and he's got the most piercing eyes and this is a black and white photo but he still has these piercing piercing eyes and I'll never forget those eyes and I was like wow the first thing I remember said is oh this guy looks creepy and I look at his name and his name is Vigo Kohler so I'm thinking wow that's weird VK so they're still playing with the Ouija board and I say hey ask the spirit if his name is Vigo. And it immediately goes to yes. And so that's when we realized that we had been speaking to Vigo Kohler, who was the founder, creator of Vigo Hotel and Kohler Park, which is right next door. So the Vigo Hotel has a long history of being one of the most haunted places in Hebronville. And it still stands to this day, although I believe it's abandoned. The emergency medical services, EMS, used to live in this building. This was where they would house their actual EMS service, where the ambulance would would stay, where their offices were, where they would sleep, things like that. There are a lot of stories from them regarding some of the situations and things that would happen in the building. A couple that I remember them telling me in particular was that they would often see Vigo Kohler himself in the building. Most of the time, though, when they saw him, they could only see his image from the waist up or the waist down. So it literally would look like pants with shoes walking by itself around the building. A lot of the times they would wake up from their bunks in the middle of the night, and it was kind of like bunk beds. And when they would wake up, there would be Vigo Kohler just staring at them, looking at them while they're sleeping. Sometimes they would be in this small little kitchen nook that they had, and pots and pans would fly across the room. One time there was a visitor just sitting down watching TV and hanging out with the, the EMS guys and, and girls there and he saw a loaf of bread fly out of the kitchen, head toward his head as if it was going to hit him in the face and it stopped in the middle of its flight and just fell on the ground. There's a bank right next door to the Vigo Hotel. It's known as the First National Bank of Heavenville, Texas. And my cousin Sivone and her brother, Juan Carlos at the time, were sitting in the back seat of the car while my aunt, Irma, was making a deposit. And my little cousin, JC, Juan Carlos, said, uh, Mom, who's that lady? And my aunt, Irma, was like, what lady? 
she's like the lady across the street there in the window my cousin Simone looks and she doesn't see anything my aunt looks and she doesn't see anything and she's like there's no lady there and he goes yeah there's a lady standing in the window she's wearing a red dress and they couldn't see anything when they told me this story I remember being very excited because one of the stories I heard a lot from the EMS members as well is the lady in the red dress they say that she usually walks up and down the stairs and is often seen in the third, fourth floor windows. The story goes that, you know, every everybody heard the story like she was jilted on her wedding and she killed herself in the hotel and that's why she's in the hotel. But the interesting thing about the lady in the red dress is that they had some physical evidence of her existence because one of the things that they would notice is that she never wore shoes. She would walk around barefoot when they would see her. And one night while we were there at the Vigo Hotel, the EMS members showed me one of the most curious things I'd ever seen, which was ladies' footprints going up the stairs and into a wall. But the weird thing was, where the wall ended, you could literally see the back half of a foot as if the footprint would go through the wall itself. And then if you look at the wall very closely, you can see the outline of what used to be a door. This also happened a lot with Vigo Kohler's ghost, is he would walk into these walls where there was an outline of what used to be a door. My grandmother used to work with an organization that would actually feed the elderly, which I thought I always thought was funny because she was the elderly, but she would still feed the elderly. And for the longest time, they decided to use a very open space where the main lobby is of the Vigo Hotel. And one time, she and a few other workers were there, and some of the elderly were coming in, bit by bit, and she saw this man standing in the corner, and the other lady saw him too. And they kept saying, Pasale, come on in, there's plenty of food, come on in. But the man was stood there, looking at them. And they were like, don't be shy, come on in, you know, there's lots of food, there's lots of food, just come on in, have a seat, we'll get you a plate. You know, still, the man just stood there by the door, didn't fully come into the room. So they were kind of like looking at each other and they were also trying to figure out who this guy was because they had never seen him before. So finally, you know, third time, come on in, don't worry, like, come on in, we don't care if you're new, come on in. The man looked at them again, turned his head, walked into a wall and disappeared. When they went to go talk to the EMS about what they had just seen, they said, oh, you saw Vigo. That was Vigo Colder. All of these things happened in the hotel We kind of, you know, investigated it here or there when we could. We never really got a lot of results. Just to hear a few weird voices and stuff like that. But by far, the scariest thing I feel that was related to the Vigo Hotel was back at my friend Jerry's house, where we had originally played the Ouija board and talked to Vigo Kohler. It was around the same time that we had just done this session. We were hanging out in the living room. I was facing the wall that had a hallway that led to two bedrooms. My friend Jerry's bedroom and his dad's bedroom. From the angle that I'm sitting at, I could actually see through the hall to my friend Jerry's dad's bedroom. And his door was open and I could see a window in the room that was actually fairly lit because behind his house he had like a big shed that had a lot of light. So we're sitting there and we're watching TV and Jerry's sister Jessica goes into the room with her baby. And I could see her walk over to the bed, which was on the right side, just out of out of reach from where I can see. And she must have put the baby down because she came back out without the baby. And as she was coming back into the room from the hallway, I saw something kind of on the corner of my eye behind her. So she walked into the room and standing behind Jessica was a man. It was the shadow of a man standing there. But the weirdest thing was the only reason I could see him was because of that light from the window behind him and where his eyes should be it was see-through so I could see the window through his eyes on the other side of this shadow so the shadow was not shadow it was three-dimensional it was something that was concrete and I saw it slowly walk from the left side of the bedroom and cross over to the bed where the baby was So immediately I said, Jessica, I need you to go get your baby. And she was like, what, why? I said, go get your baby and get her now. So Jessica 
ran into the bedroom, picked up the baby, came back. And Jerry's like, what's going on? And I told him, I said, as soon as you let the baby down on, on the bed and came out, there was a man in the room, a shadow man. And I could see through his eyes. He had white eyes or clear eyes. And of course, she was very upset that I made her go into that room. But I have a feeling that because this happened around the same time that we had been contacting Vigo Kohler, that Vigo Kohler or some other spirit tied to the Vigo Hotel was what was in that room that night. Listening to this story, I realized that at the same age I was having my experiences at the Lynch House, Alexis had all this unfolding in his life. He still looks back at this often, recalling how significant it was to him because it was the first time he'd ever physically seen a shadow person. I want to take us backward now, at the close of this episode, back to my hometown of Pawnee in the year 1993. I was around nine years old, and we were about to move into a new home, and my life was about to change forever. This is Stephen, and my story takes place in my hometown, which is in South Texas, and it's a town called Pawnee, Texas. Before this incident happened, I was living with my mom and dad in a trailer home on my mom's parents, my grandparents' property. Uh, We had a really close-knit family. I was always hanging out with my cousins and aunts and uncles and having dinner with everyone at my grandparents' house. And one day my dad took me just up the road, not even a mile. And it was kind of isolated, but it was like a 12-acre plot of land with nothing on it, not even a tree. He stood out in a certain part of their land and he said, come on over here and I'm going to show you something. And he stood there and he said, we're standing in what's going to be our future living room. I've been saving for many years and we're going to actually build our own brand new brick two-story home. And so I was really excited. I mean, coming from a small trailer house, living literally right next to my parents in my room, I was now going to have my very own room upstairs entirely by myself. So the house was built and it was awesome. It was incredible. Uh, Everything brand new. And my dad had actually told the builders to put in this sort of art desk in this sort of alcove window, this nook that stuck out on the second floor, and I could do my writing and my drawing there. Even at a young age, I had a lot of interest in writing and and artwork as well. So it was a really cool space. I should have loved it, but I, for some reason, felt uncomfortable from day one in that house, mostly up in my bedroom. The downstairs felt fine. I didn't have any issues there. It seemed to just be concentrated upstairs and heavily concentrated in my actual bedroom. And I couldn't really articulate what this was. I just felt uneasy. And I thought at first, okay, I knew I was a kid. I knew this was something really new. I went from living and sleeping right next to my parents in a room next door to them to being on a whole new floor in a whole new house on this 12-acre plot of land out in the middle of nowhere. So maybe it was just that. Maybe I was just letting it get to my head. But one night, I had an experience that would solidify my feelings that something was wrong with my room. The night was just as normal as usual. I did my homework. I, you know, eat supper with my parents. I went to bed. I had a little dog at the time, a little Jack Russell Terrier named Milo. And uh, being an only child and being out in the middle of nowhere, he was kind of like my best buddy, and he always slept in my room with me. So Milo and I went up to bed. I passed out. Sometime in the middle of the night, I had an experience that I have a very difficult time explaining even to this day. The closest thing I can compare it to is an outer body experience. But I'm 10 years old. I don't know anything about outer body experiences yet. I haven't researched them. So I don't think I could have dreamt that kind of experience. It's not in my subconscious. It's not in my psyche yet. You know, I don't can't conjure up that. So let me explain what happened. It's hard to explain, so I'm going to try my best to do it. I wake up, or so I think I wake up. And instead of waking up to my eyes looking up at my ceiling, I usually sleep on my back. I see almost nothing, darkness, not even the moonlight coming through the windows, and I can't figure out what I'm looking at, but I'm also feeling something. I'm feeling like a hot breath on my face, and I'm pulling 
and lifting slowly backward and upward, sort of lifted from my body. What I can explain is my spirit form is being lifted from my body, but I'm face down facing myself. And it's painfully slow, like so slow that for the first minute, all I could see was darkness and blurry objects because my face was so close to my face, like I couldn't make out any features. And as I'm being like slowly pulled backward in the direction of my ceiling, I start to see my nose, my lips, and my eyes are closed as I'm pulling out. I'm seeing my hair now, seeing my ears, seeing my neck. I'm freaking out internally in my spirit form or whatever you want to call it because I can't move. I can't make a sound. I can't get myself to go back into my body and I'm having sort of this panic and it's still moving painfully slow backward and upward. I'm seeing more. I'm seeing my chest. I'm seeing my full head on the pillow. I'm seeing more of the pillow but there's a hand on it now and this hand has been resting there apparently for a while but it's not my hand at all. It's a small female child's hand it's decaying it's white almost kind of wet flesh as in pulling out further I'm getting chills all over my spiritual body form I'm just feeling like what is this Who, whose hand is on my pillow while I'm sleeping and there's a gown attached to the arm now I'm starting to pull out and see more and I can see that it's a white gown seems like it's kind of early 1900s era type sleeping gown and it's also tattered and worn and kind of dirty now I'm seeing hair a head that's attached to this hand and arm and it's a full figure of a child a young girl but her hair is covering her face I'm seeing a side profile of her as as I sort of spiritually make my way upward and backward still even further I'm seeing her and the thing that unnerves me to this day is that what she's doing is she's just looking at me, sleeping. She's crouched, and she's looking all over my face, moving inch by inch, trying to see if she could see me or have me look at her or wake up or something. The motions just looked unnatural. It was completely disturbing, and I couldn't do anything about it. I wanted to just wake up and run, but this spirit, outer body of mine, was trapped it was floating upward and backward and by this point I had like a full aerial view of my body resting with this girl next to me in my bed I could tell through the kind of ratted tattered knotted hair and long dark hair in front of her face I could see slivers of her skin and and it looked decayed also on her face I couldn't see anything else but just like just brief moments that would pass when their hair would move and soon enough, I felt myself, my spiritual self, kind of come to a stop. And I was at the ceiling, tucked in the back corner of my room. And I was now seeing the whole view of everything. And it was at that moment that something changed entirely. The room just kind of got entirely still. And I didn't want to breathe, even in my spirit form. And I'm looking down at this girl. And she just kind of like freezes. Like she senses something and she turns her head around and looks right at my spirit form. And you got to look at this like you're almost like a camera in a film and it's like up in the corner of the room. That was what I was seeing. Well, she just noticed the camera. She noticed me. I did still couldn't see her face, just pieces of it, but she became frantic and I could tell the desperation in her mannerisms and the way she was coming up and trying to claw at me and reach me thankfully she was shorter and she was like couldn't reach my outer body but she was trying really hard I can't tell you how I felt in that moment I felt so desperate so helpless and so terrified but somehow in that moment I was sucked back into my body I jolted up in my bed in a cold sweat breathing heavily grabbing at my neck because I just felt so violated And I looked quickly to the left side of my bed where she was in that outer body experience, and she was not there. But the room felt cold. It felt terrifying to me. And to make matters worse, Milo, my dog, was growling and barking at the spot that she was standing in my outer body experience. I quickly just 
took off. I didn't even take anything with me. I just ran down the stairs, flew down them, ended up on the couch, kind of curled up in the fetal position, and eventually Milo came down too, and we just slept on the couch. I never had any experience like that in my life leading up to that day, and never since. So it really makes me always think back to that night, and I wondered, okay, if it was an outer body experience, I never had one before, I never had one after. If it was a dream, I've never had night terrors so severe, I've never had nightmares that severe before or since. That's the only experience I've ever had. The next day, my parents, you know, were confused. They asked me why I was down on the couch, why why I wasn't up in my room, and I made up some lie, you know. Oh, I fell asleep watching TV and wanted to sleep down here. As the days went by, days turned into weeks, turned into months. My parents were like, this is getting out of hand. You need to sleep upstairs in your room. I told them, I can't. And they asked me, and I told them what happened. And they laughed and said, you watch too many scary movies. No more scary books or movies for you for a while. And I didn't know how to express as a 10-year-old kid how serious it was, how uh, real it was. It was not a dream. I know it wasn't. And that kind of spawned me to pursue answers and to seek out the truth in this strange realm of the paranormal that we all try to find answers for. That wasn't the end of her. I felt her presence a few more times during my whole entire childhood. My parents still owned the house. As the years went by, some of the other experiences that were had in that particular room or the upstairs area of the house, you know, I, I still went up there and I did my homework. And I also used that drawing nook because it was a great nook with the window looking out at this oak tree. Although it was really hard to because your back is facing the entire room and all I could feel was her watching me. And one day, when I was up there drawing, something whizzed right by my ear. It slammed against the window, and it stuck in the actual blinds. And I just dropped my pencil, got chills all over my body, turned around, there's nothing there. I look back at what's in this window, what's stuck in the blinds, and it's one of those glow-in-the-dark stars, the large ones that you hang, you know, that you stick up to your ceiling. I had the brain then that I have now as I'm an analytical person. And I start looking at that and I'm thinking, what logically could have caused that? And the first thing that came to mind was a star fell, the fan was on, it hit it and it flung it right into the window. That makes sense. But the problem was the fan wasn't on. There was no logical explanation for something to fly at that angle and at that speed to stick into that window. I felt that that was her presence. I also had another experience with a good friend of mine later on in junior high. We would get a tennis ball, and one of us would stand at the top of the stairs, the other would stand at the bottom, and we would play like a kind of a cheap form of dodgeball, but we couldn't leave the stairwell. Well, this one particular day, I got my friend on the thigh, and it bounced off, and he's upstairs. It rolls into the room across from my room. There's a spare room up there also. As he's walking to go get the ball, I see him freeze and just turn pale. He looks terrified. And he just bolts down the stairs, shoves me out of the way, flies out the door, which is right behind me, and I find him sitting on our bench outside, shaking. He explains to me that he saw a black shadow come out toward him from that doorway in that spare bedroom. And I went on to tell him that I'd seen the shadow too. One day when I was walking up the stairs, I just saw it staring at me from the top of the stairs, and it moved just slowly into my bedroom. And he, I'm not joking when I say this, he literally never came to my house ever again. That was my best friend growing up. And so this is the story of the girl in my room. The story sadly never really ended for me. And it's kind of embarrassing, but I remember the first time I took my wife to my house, she stopped me and asked me a question, which was kind of strange. I, would, I wouldn't question why she would ask me this. She said, why are you dragging your mattress down the stairs? And I never, ever stopped to think about it. It was just a instinct. It was natural. I did it every time. And I realized as a grown man, I can't even sleep in that room to this day. So it's a very cliche saying, but, you know, that moment 
that very first experience I ever had truly has haunted me my entire life. Since starting this show, it's been incredibly rewarding chasing after other people's ghosts. The numerous hauntings I've investigated and the many people I've interviewed has lent a degree of validation for me in what I experienced when I was 10 years old. It was hard having that experience alone and as a child, but as childhood passed by and I grew into young adulthood, I questioned the experience myself. You see, paranormal experiences can be so absurd and feel so unreal that after enough time passes, you convince yourself that it didn't happen. And that's where I was headed with this experience of mine, with this girl in my room. I remained afraid to sleep upstairs, I guess from the trauma, but a long time ago, my mind had already begun the process of doubting the experience and had pushed it far back into the recesses of my memory. But recently, something brought it all back. So yeah, what's up? Um, so I wanted you to talk about something, but it's mostly for you. And so it's something that's happening with, with you and I've been seeing it. Uh, you know, since we've been spending a lot of time together now, and I need to kind of just have this conversation with you. Um, when we were at Spider House initially, I had seen like just kind of something in the background, and I didn't want to. Initially, I just thought it was just like a passerby or something a little bit different. But then, as we've kind of gone through different investigations, and I'm seeing you all the time, I'm seeing the same thing kind of now get a little bit more clearer and a little bit more clearer. Um, and so I just finally got to the point where I'm like, I really have to talk to you about it because I'm starting to now, you know, see it in my house. It's just really strange. But I don't know if you're ready for that or if you want to talk about that yet. Do you feel like it's connected to me at all? Yes, because it's only when you're, it only happens when you're there. So, and then really weird things are happening at the house. Like, I know you always are like, oh, are you waiting for me to call you or something? It's, no, it's just I knew you were going to call me because it'll stand in front of the like in front of my phone, like pointing at the phone when it starts to ring, telling me that it's you on the phone. And it's only happening when it's you. And what has it developed into? Can you see it clearly now? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it started off like a shadow and then just kind of started morphing into, you know, a person. And I was like, oh, it's just gotten clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. So it's it's a little girl. Um, and right, I've been trying to see if I could see her face and I can't, I'm not very, I, I you know, I, either it's me cause I'm new at this or something, but I'm not seeing her face at all. It's more like she's floating like in water. So I can see her hair kind of like whispering around and what she's wearing, like a little nightgown. <laughs> Sounds really weird and creepy, but I mean, that's what she looks like. And if she's with you, she's usually either standing right next to you or, if she's not with you, she'll make it known, hey, you're, or call him. If she wants me to call you or she knows you're on the phone, she'll make it known to me. Go go and do that. Okay, I don't know if I want to know this, but can you can you tell me more about what she looks like as far as the hair, the hair color, and the, the nightgown color? Yeah, so she has, you know, uh, so she's a little girl. She's wearing a nightgown. It's kind of like a white, those, I don't know how to explain them, those white, like, old-school nightgowns that have the little ruffles on the edges. Um, and her hair is dark, uh, like uh, dark black, and it's just kind of floating in front of her face. That's definitely something that happened, and it's something from my past that I didn't want to really ever hopefully face again. But uh, now that you brought that up, it's pretty clear. I think I know what you're talking about. We'll have to get together and uh, get some more information on this thing you're seeing, I'm assuming. Okay. I had so many questions following this call. Who was this little girl? Why was she back? Or a more frightening thought, had she ever really left? This call with Sarah happened in December of 2017. It was the time when we were wrapping up the tavern case and moving on to the clay pit. And over the course of many months, I began a journey with Sarah and Alexis, traveling back to my hometown, back to my old bedroom, revisiting the pieces of my past that I left behind decades ago. In the next episode, I'll take you all with me on my very own personal investigation of the girl in my room. Our campfire episodes are slated to kick off again on the second Monday of every month, starting on November 11th. And our investigative series, starting with the continuation of my personal journey from the Origin series, 
will continue on the last Monday of every month, starting on November 25th. And don't forget to keep an eye out on our social media and website for upcoming events. A Night of Ghost Stories at the Austin Film Festival on Halloween night, our special spirited dinner at Buenos Aires Cafe on November 9th, and our very first official ghost tour of Pioneer Farms on November 26th. I'd like to thank my team, Sarah, Alexis, and Franklin for going on these crazy adventures with me, Nicholas Fair and Petey Wilder for your talented musical contributions to the show, Jennifer for keeping us organized and on schedule, as well as assistant editing, my dad, Sam, for his historical research assistance, Alex for his help assistant editing, and my very supportive wife, Tao, for sticking with me all these late nights and long hours, and for taking amazing photographs on every case. And last but not least, David Dalton of Driftworks Sound for mastering every single episode on the tight turnarounds I give him. Please support their works by visiting our website, thenightowlpodcast.com, and clicking on the About tab. There you can find links to all their individual works and websites. And to help keep this show going, and my team and I fed and caffeinated, please support us for as little as a dollar a month on our Patreon page. This contribution not only helps me keep this show alive, you gain access to a ton of cool behind-the-scenes stuff. So please visit patreon.com backslash the Night Owl Podcast and become a Night Owl patron today. And a special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Oh Boy Print Shop. If you have the need for custom t-shirt printing, you can feel at ease in the hands of Oh Boy Print Shop. Be sure to mention the Night Owl Podcast to get $50 off your first order. And don't forget to stop by the Clay Pit in Austin, Texas and ask for the Night Owl Hidden Spirits menu. Grab a special haunted cocktail and support the show. Thank you all, and stay restless out there. This podcast was mastered by David Dalton of Driftwork Sound. If you're ready to up the production quality of your podcast or music, go to driftworksound.com. That's D-R-I-F-T, worksound.com. And get your project mixed, mastered, or produced using well-established methods and unconventional techniques. That's driftworksound.com. And remember, your first master is completely free.